Amen. You know, it's quite a realization that the grace of God is not just seen in the fact that He would save a sinner who was willing to repent and seek His forgiveness, but that His grace is seen in the fact that He is the one who initiated that process. That He looked beyond our faults and He saw our need and responded to that by sending a Savior to die for us. And the Bible clearly teaches us that we love Him because He first loved us. We didn't initiate this contact with God. We didn't come back to Him and say, Lord, you know, I want to make things right. He came to us and said, you need to make things right. And I'm just so thankful for that. We sang in the choir, sang just a moment ago a song, All I Have is Christ. And, and one of the statements in there is, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And it's just true. Uh, God's grace is seen in the fact that he came to us when we were undeserving and even unwilling to come to him. It's a blessing. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning is where we're going to be. And John 4, probably to most of us in here, is a familiar passage of Scripture that deals with Jesus and his interaction with the Samaritan woman uh, at Jacob's well. And it's a, a powerful story or historical account of what happened here. And there are so many things that we could talk about in reference to this. In, in this passage, we find Jesus coming and and talking to this woman about her soul and her, her, her need for uh, living water. He revealed himself uh, as the living water that we need for eternal life. We could look at this passage and consider uh, how he cares for us and forgives us as sinners. And we could talk about the, the example that Jesus said and how to go and, and, and reach someone for Christ. And how to uh, kind of start a conversation about their soul and their need for the Lord. And all of those things would be worthy considerations as we looked at this chapter. But we're going to focus on a different subject than those this morning out of John chapter 4. In a moment, I'm going to have you stand. Let me give you a little bit of background on this passage. Jesus is on his way uh, from Judea, Jerusalem area, up to Galilee. The Jews at that time, uh, in between uh, Judea and Galilee was a region known as Samaria. It was a, a region of people that were by, by ethnicity, by blood, they were half Jew and half Gentile. And uh, the Jews considered them to be half-breeds. They considered them to be kind of untouchable. And so the, uh, traditionally what, what the Jewish people would do, because they wanted to have no interactions, no dealings with the Samaritan people, if they were making this trek from Judea to to Galilee, that they would go around that region known as Samaria. They'd go out of their way to avoid it. But the Bible tells us in the early part of this chapter that Jesus went there and he must needs go through Samaria. In other words, it was of God's design and plan for Jesus to be in that place at that time. And being weary with his journey, he sat down on Jacob's well and a woman of Samaria comes out in the middle of the day, not the typical time of day that someone would come to the well to draw water. Normally that would be done in the cool of the day, in the early morning hours, but we get the idea that this woman, because she was a sinner, we learned some of the history of her life, that she was even among the Samaritans, an outcast among her own people. 
and probably to avoid the, the crowds and the embarrassment and the shame of being around people, she came at a time that there wouldn't be other people there at the well. But the Lord knew exactly where she needed to be at what time, and, and he was there waiting for her. And there's this interaction that takes place between them as she, he asks her to, to give him some water and, and uses that as a springboard to talk to her about living water and eternal life and her need for a savior for salvation. But in the course of their interaction, she brings up the subject of religion, or we could say more specifically, the subject of worship. And that is the subject that we're going to take some time and focus on this morning from John chapter 4, is the subject of worship. And so I want to pick it up here in verse number 19 of John chapter 4. And if you've, re if you've reached John 4, 19, if you would stand for the reading of the scripture, if you're able to do so. Verse number 19, here the woman says to Jesus, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She says this in reference to the fact that he's already told her many things about her life that no one else would know, and she never told him. So now she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. But listen to what she says. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say, that's the Jews, ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the, listen to these words, the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of true worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word here at this time, Lord, I recognize our need, my need, for your help to understand the things that are written here, to be able to rightly divide the truth of your word, but then also to make application in our own lives about these truths. Lord, as we broach the subject today of worship, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to understand the importance and the value of exalting God, of, of lifting you up, and of truly worshiping you. And I pray that that would be accomplished here in this place today. Lord, help us to better understand what worship is, and help us to be better and true worshipers of the only God. Lord, work in this service, I pray, and if there be anyone who is listening to this message this morning or any other time 
that does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that as we consider this important subject, that they would come to understand the need to know the living God, that they would come to Him in salvation. So, Lord, just work in a mighty way, I pray, at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, this woman here is in a place where she is really broken because of her sin. Jesus brought up the fact that this woman had been married five different times and now was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And while that certainly was taboo at the time, maybe not quite as much today in the world that we live in, it certainly is not the will of God for someone to live that kind of lifestyle. And, and, and she really was living in sin, and she was ashamed of that. Jesus comes, and interestingly and ironically, he, he asks her to give him a drink of water when he himself is the living water that she needs. And he uses that to start this conversation and, and, and to really uh, encourage her and invite her to come to him and drink of the water that he is offering, that is to, to receive the gift of eternal life, to receive his forgiveness. And as many people do when you try to approach the subject of salvation, she tried to take the conversation in the direction of religion and worship. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this before, but maybe in the course of a conversation you're trying to witness to someone and tell them of Christ and and, and invite them to, to know the Savior. You might ask them a question like this. You might say, if you were to die today, do you know 100% that you're going to heaven? Or you might ask them a question uh, more like this. Are you, are you, how would you describe your relationship with God? Or are you saved? And a lot of times when you ask questions like that, what do people do? They, they want to start talking about their religious experience. Well, I go to this church over here. I got baptized at this time. You know, I try to uh, be a good person. I, I pray every day. I talk to the Lord. I hear that one a lot. Uh, I, you know, I, I have a Bible and I read it. And what they're really saying is, I, I'm hoping that by doing good religious things that God will accept me. But we understand that that's actually not the way of salvation at all. The way of salvation is simply through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he already did everything necessary to pay for your sins, to save your soul, and he offers you a gift of eternal life. And all that's necessary is to receive that gift by repentance and faith, recognizing you're a sinner separated from God, that there's no hope of eternal life in yourself or in your own good works, that the only hope you have is in Jesus, and in repentance you turn to him in faith, believing upon him and his finished work on the cross to save you, and at that moment you are saved. You receive the gift of eternal life. That's what the Bible teaches. But here this woman directs this conversation to that of worship, and here's what she says. Verse number 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's referring to uh, a mountain near a place called uh, Shechem or Sychar there. And it was a place where the Samaritans believed this to be kind of holy ground, a religious place. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Lord chose the city of Jerusalem to put his name there. And, 
and ultimately the, the temple was set up there and later on the, the, uh, the tabernacle was set up there and later on the temple would be built there in that place. It was the place where the, the Jews were to go and worship the Lord. And, and so she as a Samaritan says, we've got this tradition over here that we believe this mountain is the place where we worship, but you as a Jew believe that Jerusalem's where you're supposed to worship. That's the difference. Oh, we've got the same God. We just kind of view things in a little bit different way. I want you to notice how she distorted this concept of worship. First of all, while she was well-meaning, her, her belief of the worship of God was rooted in tradition. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. How many people are there in the world today that they believe what they believe simply not because they've researched it for themselves, not because they've studied the scriptures and, and found the answers, but simply because of what they were taught. They were raised in a particular type of family, and they say, you know, my, my mother was a good Christian. My, my grandmother prayed every day, and, and I was always taught this way. And she was rooted in, this is what our fathers did. This is, I'm a Samaritan, and that defines not only who I am ethnically and, and, and my culture, but it also it defines what I believe and what I practice. So she was her view of worship was rooted in tradition. It was also rooted in location. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, this place. We believe that this is the place where you are supposed to worship God. I see so many parallels here. Because how many people will come into a building like this one and leave believing that I have met with God and I've worshipped God today because I went to church. And it's really their, their view of the worship of God is tied to a location. And I just want you to know that this building that you sit in today is just that. It is a building and nothing more. That's all this is. It's a building. There's, there's no special blessing in this place. There's no you know, spiritual presence here that would not exist beyond these walls. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful that we have a place, that the Lord has provided a place for us to gather together and to worship Him. I'm thankful that in this location, the Lord has done many wonderful works among us and and, and many of you could testify to those things. Praise the Lord for that. I'm not saying that this isn't a special place because of those things. What I am saying is when you really get down to it, this building is made up of, of wood and sheetrock and some bricks. And it really is worthless in regard to the worship of God. And just because you are in this place today doesn't mean you're worshiping God. It doesn't. And so she, she, her view of this was like, okay, because of my tradition... And because of this location, that I guess I'm probably okay with God because I'm a Samaritan and I'm part of the, the one true religion. That's the way she was thinking of this. Well, Jesus talks to her about this and tells her that God is a spirit. Verse 24, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In verse 25, notice this, she says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah, the Messiah, cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. In other words, okay, you have your way of believing, and I have my way of believing, but someday, Christ, the Messiah, he's going to come, and he's going to straighten us all out. It's interesting that she would say this to his face, he being the Messiah himself, 
And he even said to her, I that speak unto thee am he. But her idea was this. I believe what I believe because of my tradition, because I've got the right location, at least in her own mind, and when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he'll straighten us all out. You know, a lot of people live that way and think that way. I'm okay, I'm right with God because of my tradition, because of my religion, because I go to church, because I worship, and, you know, I might not have assurance, but I trust that someday, you know, I'll stand before God and everything's going to work itself out. That was the way she was looking at this. What she missed was that none of the things that she mentioned there are worship. Did you know just, and I mentioned it a moment ago, but coming to church is not worship in and of itself. It's not. And being religious is not worship in and of itself. And so Jesus here helps to set her understanding straight of what true worship really is. And over the, the, the course of this message and probably in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about this subject of true worship. I want you to notice one of the things that he says about worship. Verse number 23, he says, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We're not going to hit on that today. But notice he says, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. First thing I want to point out to you about this, that in Jesus' correction of her, is that God desires worship. God is looking for true worshipers. And by the way, he is worthy of worship. He is worthy of our worship. Today, I believe that the Father, as he looks down upon us as Mount Zion Baptist Church, is looking in the hearts of the men and women that are here, seeking true worshipers, seeking those whose hearts are right before him, seeking those who are looking to exalt his name and lift him up. He desires worship. God, the Father, is to be the object of our worship. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. Now, if we put this into perspective this morning, if God desires our worship, and He is to be the object of our worship, then it's important that our primary concern and primary consideration in worship is this, is God pleased with my worship? It's not about me. And it's not about you. This is a problem that a lot of people have because, I, I mean, pe people are choosing, for instance, churches based upon what they want. Oh, I like this church over here because of these programs that they have. And I like this church over here because they're friendly and nice. And, and I like this church over here because their music really connects with me. And, and really what they're saying is, I am going to choose my place of worship and, and I'm going to choose the type of worship based upon what feels good and feels right to me. Let me ask you, if that's the case, who is the object of your worship? If our worship is rooted in the things that we feel are right or 
or are pleasing in our sight, then our, the object of our worship is really not the Lord, it is ourselves. And so Jesus, as he begins to talk about the subject of worship, something very interesting he does here is he begins to talk to her about God. Verse number 24, look at this. God is a spirit. Now, what does that have to do with anything in the subject of worship? Why does he talk about God and God being a spirit? Well, it's, it's really very simple. Because our worship of God must be rooted in an understanding of who he is. In verse number 22, Jesus says to her, Ye worship, ye know not what. You're, you're worshiping, but you don't even know the God that you're worshiping. You're giving lip service to God, but you don't know God. And so he begins to teach her about who God is and, and what he is like, his nature and his character. And folks, I just want to say to you that it is vital for us to understand. If we, are, uh, if we truly want to be worshipers of the Lord, we need to understand who he is. We need to understand what kind of a God he is. Notice he says, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit. In other words, our worship must be consistent with his nature. God is a spirit. Therefore, our worship, it's not just to be physical. It is to be spiritual. God is truth. Therefore, the worship of God must be according to truth. By the way, God is holy. Therefore, the worship of God ought to be holy. I'm just saying that what we understand from this is that true worship comes from an understanding of who it is that we're worshiping. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter number 17. Acts 17. In Acts 17, Jesus, or not Jesus, but Paul here is preaching Jesus. And he's in the city of Athens in Greece. Athens was a place that was known for their Gnosticism. They, they worshipped many gods. And their idea was that the more gods that they worshipped, basically, the more godlike they would become. And as... Paul was beholding this city in verse number 16. It says that his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So he's going to take this moment to preach. Verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotion and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. The Greeks had this idea. We're going to set up an altar for every deity that we can think of. All the Greek gods of ancient history, they had altars to worship them right there in Mars Hill. And in their mind, they thought there are so many gods out there that these are all the ones we know about, but no doubt there are gods that we don't know about. And so we're even going to construct an altar for the express purpose of worshiping whatever god is out there that we don't know. 
And how ironic is it that in their search of all the deities they could think of, the one that they missed was the one true living God. So Paul, as he's walking up Mars Hill, sees this altar with that inscription to the unknown God. And in his mind, he thought, this is my starting point. That's what I'm going to preach on right there. Why? Because they're trying to worship a God that they don't know. And you can't worship a God you don't know. He said, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. Let me tell you about this God that you don't know. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands. God isn't worshipped by our hands or by our buildings or by anything that we do as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and have made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath, de uh, hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Why? That they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So he takes this opportunity to say, listen, the God that you are trying to worship, you can't worship him because you don't know him. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you who he is and what kind of a God he is. Why? Because you can't worship God if you don't know God. You know, it's probably the case. And I will be the first to admit, I don't know your heart. And I don't have anyone in mind, but God knows every one of our hearts. And it is probably the case in a group this size that there are some here that don't know God. If you have never received Christ as your Savior, you can't really worship God. If you don't know Him, if you are not His child... How could you possibly worship him? If our worship of God is rooted in an understanding of, whom, of, of who he is. God desires our worship, but we can't worship that which we do not know. So Jesus begins with a statement about who God is. And then back in John chapter 4, another thing I want to point out to you about worship. God desires worship, but listen... God defines worship. God defines worship. You see, if, if God is the object of our worship, He's the one who gets to decide in what way we worship Him. 
Verse 24, we read it a moment ago. God is a spirit, and they that worship him, listen to that word, must worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a must. There is a must. We live in a day and age where we don't like musts, especially when it comes to church life. We think, well, you know, you have your way and I have my way. You know, there's even a, a phrase that goes around. Maybe you've heard it before. It's really two words. Your truth. Your truth. You need to live according to your truth. Did you know that that, that makes no sense at all? There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. Truth is truth. So there, there's, no, there's no subjectivity to truth. It is what it is. God has defined and, and determined truth. And God has defined and determined what true worship is. And so this idea that, well, you go worship God in your way, and I'll worship God in my way. You live the way you think you ought to live, and I'll live the way I think I ought to live, and it's all okay because we're all worshiping the same God. That's heresy, folks. God is God. And he defi- there is a must. If we're, if we're going to worship God in truth, there is a must. There is, in other words, a right way and a wrong way to come to God. It's a must. You can't come to God in salvation on your own terms. Think about that. You can't go and just expect that, you know, if I do what feels right and, and, and do the best that I can, that God is going to receive me. No, what, what did Jesus say in John 14, 6? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the must in salvation. You have to have Christ. There is no other way. There's no other way. You can't be saved apart from Christ. There's a must in that, but you can't worship God apart from the must of worship. And in this case, he said it's according to spirit and truth, Lord willing and Future weeks, we'll talk about what that all entails to worship in spirit and to worship in truth. But really, my question this morning is very simple. There are a few questions. First of all, are we giving God the worship that He desires and the worship that He deserves? Are, are we here today just out of routine or ritual, or are we here out of a sincere desire to bring honor and glory to our great God? Are we worshiping him on his terms? Are we worshiping him according to his will and his character? Is our worship of God and our understanding of God consistent with what he has revealed to us about himself in his word? And then thirdly, are you worshiping God today in ignorance or in truth. This Samaritan woman was worshiping out of ignorance. She thought she was doing some great thing because she was following her tradition and she was doing things according to the way she had been taught. But she didn't know the Lord. 
Jesus lovingly but very plainly told her, you worship, you know not what. You, you don't know the God that you're trying to worship. Do you know him? Are you worshiping according to truth? Are you connected to him in a real sense? By the way, this goes just beyond just salvation. Your worship of God is, is limited, in a sense, to, to the degree in which you know him or don't know him. If you are not in fellowship with the Lord, if you're not walking with the Lord on a daily basis, coming to church on a Sunday and going through these practices of, of trying to worship God is going to fall short of what he's really seeking. True worship comes from the heart of someone who's seeking to know him, who's walking in fellowship with him, who cries from their heart, Lord, I want to know you more. And through the knowledge of God that we gain, studying in his word, and as he reveals himself to us, our worship becomes deeper and more meaningful. Are you connected to him in a real sense? Do you know the Lord? Is your, is your worship rooted in your knowledge of him? You see, God desires our worship, but he defines our worship, and the problem is that we distort our worship, just like this woman did. So this morning, the challenge is very simple. Let us get back to true worship. In our hearts and our lives, let's seek to honor the Lord in the way that he would desire for us to do so. To humbly come before him. Do you know what the word worship means? The, the word literally means to bow low. We ought to come into the presence of God and lower ourselves that he might be exalted. John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease. Let us from our hearts this morning seek to offer him the worship that he desires.